Hi everybody, Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development. It is my honor and privilege to have Brandon Williams with us, major airline pilot, previous fighter pilot, CEO of LeadTech, and a coach for elite high performance companies. Brandon, delighted to have you with us. Thanks, Craig. I uh, appreciate you. Uh, you have me on. Thank you for the invite. Look, I just, I just loved looking at your website, looking at your profile and the things that you've done. It's very, very inspiring. Um, tell us about what, what you're so most excited about right now with the different roles that you have. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, so as you saw my, you know, my profile, like you said, you introduced me as. Um, I'm currently a major airline pilot. Um, I'm also actually uh, an adjunct professor. I teach at uh, several different schools. Uh, in management and, and other aviation courses, uh, mostly online. Uh, I've been doing that for about 10 years. So I've been in the teaching world a little bit, part-time, if you will, uh, as an adjunct. Um, and then, obviously, in the airlines, prior to that, I was in the Air Force, uh, which, as you said earlier, I was a fighter pilot and flew, uh, flew F-15s, uh, also serving in, in several leadership roles in my time there uh, while doing that. Um, and then uh, once getting out, um, you know, I was always interested in the business world. I always wanted to either run my own business or get into that, that somehow. And getting out, I, I had a few different options on, on what I was going to do. And part of me wanted to, you know, go get an MBA and, and go in the management consulting route and, and go work with one of the big three, you know, or firms and, and, and go, you know, just kind of go that way. And then part of me wanted to go do my own thing, start my own business and kind of go in that more entrepreneurial type type route. So that's what I ended up doing actually. Um, and, and really the reason is, is when I was getting out at the time, the airline, this is back in 2012 and the airline was just kind of cranking up. So I had a chance to get into that, to do that. And again, that job as an airline pilot gives me the flexibility to kind of run my own business. And I tell you all that, uh, because that's when I got into leadership speaking, management consulting. Um, most of that, I've been doing that for about seven and a half years. Most of that work has been contracted, and I contract under another company, uh, teaching their um, IP, their methodologies. Um, we would do keynotes, workshops, uh, strategy consulting sessions, planning sessions, how to execute. And uh, doing that for so long, I came up with this idea of LeadTech, which LeadTech really focuses on purely leadership development. So in other words, not just process improvement, but how do we develop leaders to lead high-performing teams? Uh, and I use my some of those skill sets and some of the things I learned as a fighter pilot leader uh, and apply it, apply it to that and how we develop leaders. So that's, that's really what I'm, I'm most excited about because um, – you know, I can't tell you how many times in my seven, eight years of consulting, you know, you'd go in and talk to these leaders or these companies and afterwards, you know, either we leave and if, maybe we could do some follow on consulting, but so many times, so many business leaders will come up to us afterwards. So this is great. You know, how do you, how do you do this? Though? How do you, how do you do this? And, and you could just see they needed, you know, not just a, a process or not a, a program, but they really needed some of those skill sets uh, to develop leaders. And I'm, you know, I'm a firm believer that leaders are not born. Um, some of us are born with certain skill sets, definitely, that, that help us um, achieve leadership. But I, I really don't think nobody's 
ever born a leader. I truly don't think that because there's so many different skill sets he goes in. But you can mentor and develop those, you know, just like anything else. Completely agree with you that we can, whatever state we start and we can add on capacities, um, skills, knowledge and growth. Absolutely. I was watching a, um, a training session that you were doing with a large organisation and when you got onto the stage, uh, the response was a bit lethargic and it wasn't about you, I guess they'd been there all day. Um, you immediately chose to raise their level of energy and reframe their minds and reset their state. How important do you think that is as a leader to be constantly monitoring the state of people in your organization and change their state? Oh, I mean, absolutely critically important. Um, and yeah, you're exactly right. My keynotes, I, I kind of pride myself on, if you watch that, bring in, bring in energy as well and, and, and lifting that up. So sometimes, <laughs> you know, if you're working with a certain team and, and the way they introduce you or the way it starts is not always under control, it can start with a crowd that's either had a kind of a boring speaker before, but I always, always bring uh, energy. Uh, to the stage and 100% but that's a great great parallel that you brought in there and uh, it actually sets up nice for my organization because my whole methodology which we can talk about later but but everything I do at LeadTAC is what's known as situational awareness leadership and it's not situational leadership you've probably heard of that if you've looked at all into this but situational awareness itself just to define that you know, we used it in, in combat, combat aviation, uh, actually any kind of flying you ever do, I guarantee you any pilot is going to know what situational awareness means. Um, you probably heard it in the self-defense industry. They use it a lot. But it's basically just that, you know, the awareness of everything around you, but the ability to take in all those variables from the external environment to your, your past experiences, your learning, your development, but everything happening around you, how you take all those barriers, how is it affecting your current situation? But more importantly, how can you project what's about to happen next? What's coming up, coming up next? So as you can imagine, in aviation, that, that's absolutely critical. Um, even just flying a small Cessna, you know, your private pilot just learning is always taught you're never complacent. You're flying along. Even if everything's going smooth, hunky-dory, you're flying along straight level, you're always looking, scanning for a field. So if your engine, single engine airplane engine quits, you have a good idea of where you're going to go. And same thing, the example you're talking about with your people. Knowing everything about your people, bringing that energy as a leader, because if you're not aware of their situation awareness, if you're not aware of your people's human factors, which human factors is what we talk a lot about too at LeadTAC, if you're not aware of that, and you can't help them mitigate human error and you ultimately can't lead them and can't help them project what's going to happen next. Because that's really what it's all about is leadership is helping your people mitigate that human error and helping them increase their situational awareness. What do you see are those repeated errors that people make that need to be addressed? Absolutely. It's, it's almost like you've <laughs> we've talked before because, Greg, um, the, uh, so what we talk about at LeadTAC is uh, human factors, like I said. And more importantly, human factors and complexity, leading through complexity. Because right now, you know, we, I mean, we were already in a complex world before, you know, there was anything we even heard of COVID. I mean, you know, people were already working remotely, uh, you know, big data, cloud computing, businesses changing quicker and quicker and quicker. 
everybody wants to be more agile, everything else. And now you throw in a pandemic and everything else is turned on its head. I mean, holy cow, you know, you, you almost can't define complexity even more. So how do we lead through complexity? Because what complexity really does is drive that, drive that human error. Now, to answer your question about the most common ones, I need to set that up because, you know, when, when I was 23, 24 years old, Air Force throws me in a $50 million piece of military equipment, an F-15. Now, I had training, but I had very low experience. And they expect me to go out and execute, lead a team of other wingmen, detach from any kind of leadership whatsoever. And I have a lot of autonomy, a lot of responsibility, a lot of accountability to achieve this mission objective that I'm ultimately making the decisions for. I mean, I have no chance to call back and ask some, you know, higher up what I need to do here. And I have my teammates, but I'm ultimately one uh, with the decision that. But when you're flying an airplane over 250 switches, dials, and displays in extremely uncertain environments, very unforgiving environments, I mean, not to mention the, the physical aspect of flying an airplane that can pull up the nine Gs, the mental capacity for a human to deal with that. I mean, it's just not, your brain was never designed for that, obviously. I mean, you know, there's no such thing as multitasking. There's task switching, right? So, but that introduces complexity and that breeds human error. So we had to know how to mitigate those human errors of the fighter plane. That's really what combat aviation was all about. How do we mitigate that? And when you're talking about human errors, the most common ones, it's such an idea that in aviation safety, where we investigate mishaps, because I did that also in the Air Force. I was a what's called an Air Force safety officer. We'd always go back whenever there was a mishap, an aircraft accident. We would go investigate it, get to the root cause, and find what they call the contributing factors that accident. And I don't want to say almost always, because you never say always, but almost always. I can't think of any aviation incident ever where human error was not a cause. I mean, yeah, parts fail, but even if it wasn't pilot error, somebody designed that part, somebody worked on that part, somebody installed that part. I mean, so not necessarily the pilot error, but there's always human error in those chain of events. So much so that aviation safety came up with the 12 most common uh, human errors. Now, I'm not going to give you all 12 of them, because uh, I'll probably miss one or two, but I can tell you the most common ones that I always see, I always like to sum it up to this, is complacency is when we just kind of get in the norm, right? Complacency is that idea, we've got it wired, I've done this so many times, or I use the example of if you know, you're flying along, straight and level, 20,000 feet, everything's going fine, I've got this wired, that's when you're starting to lose your situation awareness because that's when you're starting to become complacent. And how do we not become complacent? Well, we keep that situational awareness. And how do we do that? Well, I call it a little bit of healthy paranoia. Okay. So always thinking just something in the back of your mind, just, just kind of there, just always thinking, what have I missed? What am I not looking at? What have I not thought about? And same thing for leadership. So with that complacency, you know, how do we as leaders mitigate that? And it's, it, that's just one of the ways is talking about that healthy paranoia, keeping that situational awareness. Because, Craig, I see it all the time in businesses. You know, people say, well, we, you know, we have a few bad apples, but, and I always say, well, what are bad apples? You know, what are these employees or these team members that we call bad apples? Are they really, do they really show up to work and say, you know, I'm going to be unprofessional or I'm going to do a bad job? No, I mean, Nobody ever really does that. I mean, no professional shows up and says, you know, I'm going to do a bad job today. I'm just going to skip some steps and just not do this. 
I think it always goes back to some of these bad apples have just become complacent. Now there's some other errors we can talk about human errors, but I think complacency is the one that I just, I see the most and can just be summed up the most with, with most of the issues we see in, uh, in organizations. So personally as a leader, if I notice that I'm becoming complacent in my perspective or my actions, my strategies, I could develop that healthy paranoia to develop something that's going to make things more sharp in the way that I behave. How yep. do I deal with the team members, even if maybe they're horizontally um, other fellow leaders in the organization? Absolutely. How do I deal with that? Right. That's, that's a great question. And, and there are several ways that, that I, I approach those issues and, and several techniques. But just for the sake of time, one that I think, I think really sticks out. Um, you know, we talk about in my model, my methodology also, we talk about decentralized execution. Decentralized execution is basically the idea, the delegation of authority down to those frontline leaders, those frontline teams that are actually out executing on a mission. Just like I told you earlier, when I was that young 23, 24-year-old and that F-15, hey, I was, I was responsible for everything that happened that day. I mean, I was, that, that, that four ship, four F-15s that were going out to execute, I was responsible for everything that happened with our mission. I mean, you can imagine in, in a combat situation, that, I mean, that can have strategic implications um, with decisions you make. Um, but that decentralized execution is a delegation of that authority all the way down to the most lowest levels and, and, and going out and executing. But in order to do that, in order to have that, you've got to have three things, autonomy, alignment, and accountability. And I'll tell you that because I want to focus on accountability to answer your question. And I'm not really talking about, um, you know, I, I think accountability gets a, a, a negative connotation sometimes, kind of that, as we say in the you know, U.S., that, that kind of that vice principal who is like the, the one that really drives the discipline or whatever, you know, like do this or else kind of, kind of accountability. Like if you don't do this, you're going to get fired. And, and I, I don't really look at that. I call it peer accountability. Because um, I think about in the military when I was in a flying organization, I mean, we haven't had, you know, firing squads or things like that in the military for, for years. You know I mean? There was never an instance where I don't ever remember a time when someone said, Hey Brandon, I order you to do this or never did I order a subordinate to, to really do something. Um, now we still definitely have a rank structure. Absolutely. That's critical for a military unit. Um, but the day you use your rank to get anything done in the military is really the day you've lost because you're not really leading at that point. Mm. Uh, but why I say that is because that peer accountability, that idea, that culture within an organization that we just had in a flying unit, that when I was part of a team and I was asked to do something or was told to do something or, you know, I handed something off to someone else or I had a project, whether it's flying or non-flying, I just, it was this inherent trust that was going to get done. But if it wasn't going to get done, then they were going to come to me with ample time and say, hey, Brandon, look. I can't get this right now, or here's what I've done for this. Can you hand this off to somebody else? There was always this peer accountability, and it wasn't accountability forced down from the top. It was accountability just like that, just among peers, right? Um, you know, Harvard Business Review did a study that said in uh, poor-performing teams, there's no accountability. In mediocre teams, bosses run the accountability. But in high-performing teams, colleagues and peers account for them or hold the accountability uh, for themselves. So to answer your question, how do we, how do we do that with other people you're talking about earlier? 
is really establishing that peer accountability. Now we can talk other ways to do that. You know, there are ways of, of you know, encouraging camaraderie, morale uh, within your workplace, within your, your teams. Uh, how do we do mutual support? I mean, so many different ways you can do that, but ultimately is establishing that peer accountability. That's really powerful. So you never, really is, military, you never said that's an order. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, I, I think it's that's one of those misconceptions I think people have from the military, um, probably from the movies, I guess. You know, I mean, don't get me wrong. The military is is it, it's a, it's a when you're in the profession of arms, it you absolutely have to have a, a very rigid rank structure and very standardized system, and there there are times and places for that. Um, but it, for the most part, I mean, we're all humans in the day, and for the most part, when you're leading people, especially leading people. Um, in potentially combat situations, you've got to have their inherent trust and you've got to have, um, they have to be able to trust in you. They have to be able to, to, to see in you and understand you. It's not the civil war days of, you know, let's all line up and we're going to walk across this field. I mean, you know, those, those days are gone. So we, we have to encourage people and we have to be able to, to actually lead people. And, and so I, I just don't think it's, it's just not that, that stereotypical, we don't just march in a line, you know, and, and we don't just follow orders all the time. You know, it's exact opposite. Um, the example I gave you earlier, you think about special operations teams, Navy SEALs. I mean, those, those people are separated for days or weeks from any kind of, of decision-making authority. Um, the Marines call it the strategic corporal. So essentially the lowest leadership level in the Marines, a corporal who has a fire team of, I guess, I think about three or four younger Marines, new recruits, and they expect that corporal, they even do drills in the Marines to do this. You know, they say they have them, they're guarding a post somewhere. And they expect that corporal to make a decision. The decisions that could, like I said, have strategic implications, you know, and, and, and they pass that delegation all the way down. So they want us to be very autonomous. Now we're aligned under that commander's intent, the overall objective of what our commanders want us to, to achieve. But at the end of the day, we're, we're, they expect us to be very autonomous because we have to. Hmm. That's a great insight. I'd love for you to think back on um, your leadership development. And if you can share some of the details or experience around a situation that has helped you build your methodology that you have today? Sure. Um, oh, there's so many. I'm trying to think of the best one. Um, well, I guess one that I, I like to use, especially because kind of the, well, in the conversation we just talked about. Um, you know, I talked earlier about there's a human error and then there's establishing peer accountability and all this kind of stuff. And there's different way tools to do that. And one of those I alluded to earlier was this idea of uh, morale and camaraderie, um, get to know people, um, commanders in the military. I mean, you are expected to know your people, know, you know, their names, their kids. And I mean, you, you, of course, you know their names, but I mean, you know, a lot of stuff about them, not just the commander level, but everybody um, within that organization. And part of that morale and camaraderie is what I call uh, care and feeding of your people. And what I mean by that is, you know, I see this a lot in the business world. You know, we're, we're typically, as corporate leaders, we're graded upon whether it's returning money to the shareholders or P&L statements or balance sheets or whatever. And, that, and you absolutely have to have that for sure. It's a business. But I don't see a lot of times we, we don't really focus on uh, 
you know, people's development or how has this leader helped their people develop? How has this leader helped their people get promoted or, or move on to a bigger and better thing? So they're really concerned about the people. Well, in the military, our commanders are graded on, yes, their, their technical capabilities in terms of are they achieving the mission? Again, you have to do that. But they're also evaluated on uh, their people. How are their people doing? The people under them, are they going places? Are they, you know, being promoted? Are they happy? Are they wanting to go do other things? I mean, that is really looked at. And in, in looking at that, what it does, it really puts your people first. And so as a leader, what do we have to do? Well, we have to kind of put our own um, self-interest aside sometimes. And the best example I have of that is when I was, one of my jobs in the Air Force was I was a instructor pilot. So after my first assignment of flying F-15s, I went back to Air Force pilot training as an instructor. So I was flying a T-38, which is a, a high-speed supersonic fighter trainer aircraft, essentially teaching the next generation of, of fighter pilots before they go on to their airplanes. Well, doing this, you can imagine it's about a year-long program, or a little bit longer year-long program. And obviously one of the things we, we teach, and we have a whole list of, of syllabus stuff we have to teach, and they have to meet certain uh, measurements, certain criteria to, to move on to the next phase and ultimately graduate, hopefully. And, and one of those is obviously operations in a traffic pattern. So how to take off land. I mean, you're talking an airplane that lands at over 160 miles per hour. So it's not just as you know easy as you think, but we, we also practice emergency patterns. So if your flaps, which is on your wings, the control service doesn't work or this system doesn't work, how are you going to do that? Well, in that as an instructor, one of my jobs was I was known as a flight commander. So I was responsible for about 20 student pilots or so, and probably about maybe 10 instructor pilots any given time, 30 to 40 people-ish um, under my, my command, my watch, where I was responsible for their training. I was responsible for getting them through. Again, going to that care and feeding, I had to know about everybody. You know, I knew everybody, knew what they were going through, identify if they're fatigued, and, and all identify those human errors I was talking about. But there was this one student in particular who was coming up at the end of what we call a phase. So they had to pass each phase to keep moving along in the program. Well, this one student in particular had been, had been struggling with their, uh, one of their emergency patterns. That's what we call a no-flap landing, where you simulate your flaps are not working control surface. We can simulate that and, and see how they land. It's a little more difficult. The airplane's faster. There's just a ton of considerations there. So being the flight commander, I said, I'll fly with the student. And we'll get them up to speed because this is their last ride. If they didn't, if they didn't pass today, if they didn't get this this particular move maneuver up to speed today, they were probably going to go to what's called an elimination ride. And guess what? That's your first ride. If you don't pass that one, then you know you're out of the program. So I go fly with a student, and at this time we were only limited to one hour stories because, of course, being the government, we're at end of each fiscal year. Uh, we, you know the money is is almost over and so they they tie our flying to money so in other words it's a flying hour program so simple way to put it the amount of hours you fly is all tied to money so they can calculate it so as we're on the we're at the very end of the fiscal year so they said everybody's only limited to one hour sort of fly over that bad you got to come talk to the boss right so we go out we're flying this story he's doing okay he's getting it the student and we're almost at the one hour point and so we hit the one hour point we should be landing and i'm the instructor i'm responsible for that but I know the student doesn't quite have it yet. And I'm like, if I land now, I can't pass him because he's not up to quality. He's not up to speed. But I bet if we get another couple, he's going to be there. Just give him a little more confidence before he goes on his check ride. So what do I do? I say, keep going. 
So we do a few more. Well, we fly about 1.2. So now we're in 10 minutes-ish, 15 minutes, something like that. Taxi and go in. And uh, I walk into my boss's office. Again, part of leadership. You know, you go right to the if – you, if you mess up or if you, if you make a mistake, you go, don't hover. It's like milk, right? It, it uh, only gets worse with time, right? <laughs> so um, so I go into my boss and say, hey, boss, here's the deal. Um, flying with a student and uh, – it wasn't up to speed, and I made the decision to, to fly over an hour. We flew an hour and 15 minutes, and, and that's it. And he asked me a few times, said, well, we don't really want to do that. I got to go address that now. But he said, I understand why you did it. So I get it. So what I'm getting at is I put my neck on the line for that student pilot. Now, that's only, that's only a lieutenant, a student pilot. But they were under my watch, my command. And I, my job is to watch out for their well-being. Their betterment, and sometimes as leaders, we absolutely have to put our neck on that. We absolutely have to put our self-interest aside and focus on how we're going to promote our people. Because really, a leader, a true leader, is no longer really concerned about you know making themselves look better or putting them in a certain position. They should be more concerned about bringing their people up to to higher levels. Mm. It's a powerful insight. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I think it is. You know, and, and I think it's just one of those stories that really defines, and there's so many out there, but really defines, I think, what a, what a leader really needs to do is, is, you know, sometimes you really do have to put your neck on the line. And the other side effect of that, guess what? When your people see you do that, and they, they understand what you're doing, they will follow you anywhere mm. if they see you putting yourself out there, 110%. Yeah. That's great. I look in the last couple of minutes that we have left, Brendan, I'd love for you to share for an aspiring leader, regardless of industry, what would you say might be one thing or two things that they should build into their experiences and their learnings going forward as they move to that next level? Sure, absolutely. Building into their, their learning and their, uh, their experiences. Well, I, I think part of it is I talk a lot in my work too about this idea of psychological safety um which is not necessarily really a, a, a novel idea it's fairly new but it, it's been out there a while but this idea of psychological safety where you know we have an environment where we can go in talk about what happened our mistakes but it's not a um it's not a retribution environment right it's a what i we call in a safety world a just culture and that just culture basically is um, in aviation safety. We talk about that because we talk about we want to identify hazards. We want to identify pitfalls. We want to identify risk before it causes an accident. And it's not about pointing out who did it or why it's that. Or Well, it is why, but it's not about pointing out who did it or who needs to get the blame for this. It's about just how are we going to fix it, right? This just culture idea. In a psychological safety environment of where – we have this, this culture, this team where, you know, anybody on your team feels like they can speak up. Anybody on your team feels like, you know, if they see something wrong all the way down to the most junior new hire, they should be able to speak up and say something. You know, we learned that way the hard way in aviation, unfortunately, um, especially in commercial aviation. In the 70s, we had a lot of bad accidents. And we learned that our cockpits were not being treated like that. You know, our captains at our major airlines back in those days were running their cockpits without our fists. I mean, you never corrected the captain, right? Mm -hmm. He's the most senior person. He knew everything. And it was just this idea. And we learned the lesson the hard way with that. It's completely opposite now. Um, you're expected to speak up. But to answer your question, you know, one thing that leaders can do with that 
is have that open uh, psychological safety. Learn how to do that. And I think the best way to do that is when we were, when I was in the Air Force, after every mission, we would come back and we would conduct what's called a debrief. And a debrief, it didn't matter it didn't matter who you were. It didn't matter if you were the most senior person in that organization, a general, admiral. It didn't matter if you were a lieutenant, the most junior person in that organization. When you were in that room and shut the door, we were there just to talk about how we were going to improve next time. And it's kind of like, you know, it's kind of like Vegas in the debrief room. You know what? What's said in the debrief stays in the debrief, right? So we can talk about our mistakes and our errors in front of our teams and our peers. And we can also talk about other mistakes and errors we saw to our teammates. But guess what? The only thing that comes out of that room is how we're going to improve next time. The lessons learned. Nobody really knows what went on in there except everybody that was in that team. But it was this environment, this psychological safety environment, that as a leader, you have to learn how to, number one, foster it. But number one, you have to learn how to participate in it. Because guess what? If you're in that room and you're not taking, they can clearly see you're not taking the, uh, when someone points out your mistakes. And I've been in those in situations where, I was a young captain. I was flying with a, a general officer, and I have to call not call them out, but I have to say, hey, sir, or not even sir, hey, you know, number two, I saw you doing this today. What, what were you doing? And this is the person that holds my entire career in their hand, you know? So, but as a leader, to answer your question, you have to learn to be able to do that. You have to learn how to foster that psychological safety. Otherwise, I mean, your organization, you're just not going to get to that level unless you have that. Wonderful. That's great advice. I think with the world and the often chaotic environment that people are living in, one of the places where they can have consistency and safety is actually the environment of work if we choose to create that as leaders. So I really well, like and it. It, it really, it's like anything else. It really does start with leadership at the top. 110% is, is, and the other thing, Craig, I'll, I'll leave you with, or, and other thing I'll add on to that is when people say, well, I'm not really in a leadership position. I'm not, in a, I'm not really in a high position of influence. And my, I always say, I like, everybody is a leader in some way. Everybody, if you look close, you're a leader. You, there are people around you that you influence, maybe informally, but everyone is a leader. So start where you can influence. Start where you can and then let it grow within your organization. Wonderful. Start where you can. Brandon, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. We'll make sure that the links to um, to your company, your consulting, is there in your LinkedIn yeah. profile as well in the description with the video so that people I'll can reach out to you directly. Thank you so much. Stay safe. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks.